All right, a good question for you today to start off. A very serious question. A sober question. Okay, this, is, uh, this will make you think. Um, what would you do if today was the end? What would you do if today was the end of all things? This is not the way you kind of icebreaker that you bring to your party. <laughs> all right, a little icebreaker for you. Uh, what would you do if this was the end of all things? How about Friday? What if Friday was the end of the world? You might take tomorrow off <laughs> and spend it with others. Oh boy, so many things you might do. You might settle things with someone that, that perhaps you haven't spoken to for a while. Um, you would, I think, walk in grace and uh, kindness toward others. Maybe some bucket list things that you'd put to the forefront if you knew it was the end. Martin Luther was asked that, what would you do if the end would come today? And he replied, he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. Uh, Meaning, uh, I should live every day as if it were my last. And I would take care of the responsibilities that God gave me today. Every day we should live that way. Um, and, I, and I think as we look at the text today, we actually enter that setting. We enter the setting of what we should do, living as if it were the end. Um, the, the end is near, Peter is saying. This is the setting in which he gives us some very, very clear commands for us. And one of those commands that he gives us as a church is one of our directives of a Bible-driven church. Okay, so we're going to look at those commands in just a moment, but... Just a, a few minutes of review, because next week will be our last Sunday that we work through these eight directives, and we're kind of closing this series. But just to remind us of where we've come, I haven't been able to review each week, but remember, we're, we're gaining focus as a church on eight principles of a Bible-driven church. 11.30 a.m., we're handling these in, in more of a um, topical way, looking at the topic in several passages of Scripture, and then... I like preaching one paragraph at a time, and I think that's healthy for us. So uh, in the service, we're kind of digging into one paragraph that focuses in on that principle. Okay, and so uh, we're, we're gaining perspective on what's important. And if you want to look at that whole study, I can send it to you. It's 600 and some principles that go through what's important in a church, right? So we focus in on these. Our church is to glorify God by being Bible-driven. And our message, proclaiming Christ to those who believe and those who do not believe in the means we use for accomplishing that, praying always, utilizing scripture to build mature members. That's what we looked at last Sunday. We've been equipped by shepherding leadership to do the work of the ministry, building the body to do what? Love others. Okay, so this is your uh, marching orders. If this was our last Sunday we would want to be those who are loving others and maintaining unity. What I find interesting, and I took a little more time with this this morning, is you look at these eight Bible-driven principles, and they really mirror what was a priority for the early church. I think Acts 2.42, we find a great summary of what was a priority for the early church. They were continually devoting themselves right at Pentecost, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread, which would be the Lord's table, and prayers. Okay? And so you can kind of organize these eight principles that way under the Apostles' teaching fellowship or koinonia. Uh, we're going to get to that specific one next Sunday, the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, they overlap, right? I'm not going to read all of those because there's some overlap and there's some um, right, repetition uh, of those. But you can see where, where our eight principles kind of categorize under them. And then actually the services of our church uh, can, can be shown to uh, kind of fall in category under those principles. So you have these main principles, the services of the church, and actually our budget can, can be categorized that way. Uh, all that we do as a church really flows out of being Bible-driven and, and focusing on these things that the early church focused on as primary. But as we look at these services, you're like, well, Tim, where's the, like, where's the pie and praise? Right? Uh, where's the going and see the David show? Where's the sitting down to a fellowship meal and getting to know my brother and sister? Right? Where's the fun stuff? Well, that's what we're going to look at this week and next week. Okay? This idea of loving others and maintaining unity really is fostered by this type of stuff we do in community. Community is so important. So that is our grace groups, that is Sunday school, that is worship service. But, but that's when we talk to one another. That's when we leave and we try to get to know each other. Okay, And so that's essential to a church community. And that's what we'll ask the Lord by grace, by his grace, to continue to, to keep and push forward. All right? That makes sense. So let's jump in here. Uh, let's jump into this, this seventh of eight uh, principles of Bible-driven church, uh, loving others, loving others. Well, we're going to just walk through 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 9, as we look at loving others, because that's a, one of the primary commands there. But before we walk through it, I just want to give you a bird's-eye view of the text. I think this is really helpful anytime you're studying a paragraph, is to think through the main ideas, the kernel of that text, Okay. So, uh, the setting is verse 7, that first phrase. It's a serious setting, isn't it? The end of all things is near. Therefore, and then he gives two commands. Command number one, therefore. Command number two, above all. And he gives another command. All right, so that's really how the text unfolds. Everything's coming to an end, so you guys need to do these two things. That's what Peter's telling us. He's just keeping it very simple. Uh, I, I'd like to organize it this way. Command number one is a vertical command. Uh, command number one is to what? Pray. Okay, so because everything's coming to an end, we need to give ourselves to prayer. And then the second one is a horizontal command. What's that command? Love. Love. Above all, keep fervent in your love. Okay, so that's how the text just clearly opens up in front of us. Now let's move back and kind of get understanding of, of each of these phrases and words as we walk through it. And, and um, let the Bible speak to us. Let's let the Spirit use His Word to, to apply these things to our heart. Not just to understand what it means, but what it says today. What it says to me today. Okay? So, first of all, the end of all things is near. This is a, a serious setting. A serious setting. The end of all things is near. All right? So go and buy that car. Run up your credit card. Right? Is that what he's saying? Uh, I got this, this great max out. I could just 
no, no limit to what we could do in a couple days. Uh, and then there's the rapture and someone else has to pay for it. That's not what he's saying. The end of all things is near. Well, it's helpful to understand not just how it motivates, but really clearly understand what he's talking about here. The end. Now, he is talking about all things. Right? you got a lot of things going on today. And he's saying the end of that is near. It's helpful to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about the end. If you're taking notes, I think a helpful cross-reference to this would be another time that he uses that word in this same letter. And so if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, uh, you find him saying, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Somebody be brave and share what you believe the word end is translated there in that verse. Begins with O-U-T-C-O-M. The outcome. Good, good. It's the outcome. So the idea is you're working a problem, right? This division, long division problem, and then it comes to this outcome. It's the climax. It's, the, it's what everything is moving toward. It's the top of the mountain. Okay, and so the idea is not, it's not the explosion, and everything's disintegrated, and nothing is. The idea is that you have all of this going on, all of this going on, and it's all of it is working to its outcome. There's an ultimate outcome, and that is the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That is the end of all things that is near. Uh, the idea would be more a beautiful classical piece that lasts three hours long, <laughs> maybe maybe two hours long, like Handel's Messiah, and you have all of these different movements and themes that are coming in and out, and then they climax in this one majestic ending. Well, that's what God's doing. Or maybe a great book, and you're so tied to that book, and then in the last few pages, the author weaves all of the loose ends together, ties them all together in the end. God is going to tie all the loose ends together in the end. He is bringing all these things together to his climax. And so you have a lot of things going on, health things, relationship things, work things, church things, life things, project things, right? There's no end to all the to-do lists you have, but you got to recognize they're all working together and the all the end of all of these things is coming. Now, he does say the, all, the end of all things is near. That's a, it's, a, it's a little confusing, right? Because he wrote this a few years ago, 2,000 years ago. Is it still near? Well, it is much nearer still than then, right? We, we do know that the idea of all things coming to a climax has not happened. If you think this, this here, this broken reality of sickness, disease, war, is the end of all things that God brought to the climax, then you're deceived. The text is not talking about that. The text is talking about a time yet future when God brings all things to his end. 
And no man knows the day or the hour of that, but we do feel that even today we're closer than when it first appeared. According to the scripture, that actually began at the ascension of Jesus. As he ascended, Messiah ascended, we entered the last days, and these last days come until now. We, we are living on borrowed time. One of the men in our church, Dominic, is, is writing a church uh, booklet here that, uh, that will walk us through that next year. And uh, we'll look forward to going through the, the end times there um, and, and getting a little deeper into that. So this should affect us, though. That, that should, the understanding, my life is going toward the culmination of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and that that is coming to an end near, and it might be a day, it might be a thousand years, but it is near in God's eyes, that should affect the way I live my life. It doesn't fill me with curiosity, it fills me with purity. It doesn't fill me with laziness, it can, fills me with busyness about the work of the Lord. And so the, the talk of the end times should not fill us with those things. It should fill us with, as the Bible says, purity uh, and watchfulness. So as we watch, here are the two commands we're to carry out. Let's look at these two commands. Uh, the first one here is vertical. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. There's a command there and a purpose, and they do fit together. The command is, therefore, be of sound judgment, be of sober spirit. Be of sound judgment, be of sober spirit. Sound judgment is, is a, having a strong mind, being sensible, reasonable, prudent. Don't lose your head. Think straight. Don't get crazy when everyone around you is getting crazy. Be mature in your attitudes and actions. That's what that's talking about. Because as we get closer and closer to the end, the world will become more and more unhinged. The things that you see in your scripture will become more and more odd to the world around us. We can expect that. We're strangers and aliens waiting for another time in another place. That's what the book of 1 Peter is all about. Be of sound judgment then. Be of sober spirit. The word sober there is very similar to our word sober today. Could be used literally to be not drunk. Don't be drunk. But it really had this, this sense beyond that to be of sober mind. Um, don't let your mind be clouded. Uh, others are letting their discernment be impaired by outside influences. Don't let your mind be impaired, but think carefully about your calling, about the shortness of life in response to eternity, and the need to live for eternity. And so, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools, and we see that more and more in our world. The view of a creator, of law, of justice, of sexuality, of life, of death, of right and wrong. People are just going crazy with these things. And so, our mind needs to stay firm, according to what Scripture says. I love Kipling's poem, my dad had me memorize this. I don't know if we memorized it, but I know he referred to it several times. Uh, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, and he goes on and on and on and on and on, 
Uh, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and what is more, you'll be a man, my son. But I love that first phrase, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. We can't let our thinking, our sober spirit, to be affected by what everyone else in the office is thinking. All right, we need to be thinking carefully, well-informed from Scripture, right? Well-informed from Scripture. Well, why? Why do I need to be of sound judgment and sober spirit? So I can look down on others? So I can let them have it? No, for the purpose of prayer. So I know how to pray to help others. This is for the purpose of prayer. I'm affected by an eternal view of life so that I'm not lackadaisical, so that I'm not forgetting to pray because I recognize the importance of God working in this world. The end of all things is near. God needs me to be praying. You are the way the world is connected to God. You are so essential to your community. How? By how you pray. If, if we are not praying for the world, we're not the salt of the world. We're not the light of the world. And so as we pray for our elected officials, as we pray for our neighbors, as work, folks at work, we're actually having an eternal influence on them. It's so easy to get drunk with the everyday things of life that we don't pray. It's so easy to lose our mind on so much other stuff that we do not pray. And so we need to get our mind back to praying for one another. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Pastor Andrew and I just finished a good little book on 1 Peter uh, evangelism as exiles, life on mission as strangers in our own land. Elliot Clark goes through First Peter and shows how our life in the U.S. right now, especially the Western world, is mirroring the life of these folks in First Peter because they had been uh, cast out of the, the normal society. Their views uh, were marginalized. There was some persecution. It was more just thought evil of. And so the life that they were living mirrors ours, and we also need to live on mission and not uh, retreat into giving up, but think carefully about how we move forward. And one of those is, as First Peter tells us here in prayer, he says, one of the most practical ways we can demonstrate such concern is through prayer. Even during our exile, we can bless the world by praying for and with others. This is something I've learned, Elliot says, by watching our faithful brothers and sisters all over the world. Everywhere I go, I see national believers using prayer as a means to reach out to those around them with the love and the gospel. Praying with and caring for Muslim refugees fleeing war-ravaged Syria. Praying over the demon-possessed outside a Bible school in Tanzania. Praying with and blessing English students in Hungary. Praying with fearful earthquake victims suffering in Turkey. Praying over non-Christian parents' children during Ethiopian coffee ceremony. Praying impoverished and lowly villagers along the Ukrainian-Romanian border. Prayer works. 
The last case, Pastor Soren, was my example. February snowflakes fluttered in the soft wind. Soren and I traveled together along the rolling Tizza River. The black water flowed past frozen banks and under a sky of white marble. Very cold. And he's delivering care packages to widows on behalf of the church. Whenever he pulled his small Volkswagen station wagon to stop at a given house, we'd hop out, trudge through the snow, and bring donated foodstuffs to their door. Invariably, the widows would invite us in to warm ourselves by the ceramic tiled stoves. We'd huddle around and sort of explain our purpose. We'd come to bless them. Sent by the love of Christ, representing his church. And then he would speak briefly about the gospel and pray for them. He'd ask if they have any requests. After listening to them share about their family, health, struggles, we take turns saying grace over these widowed hosts. He mentions, as I've observed, nothing demonstrates gentleness and respect quite like praying for someone else in their presence. That is so true. And I do pray for you, and I love to pray for you, but, but as you interact with people in the community, and as things get rough for folks, the Lord will give opportunities, and this is one way to be a huge light. Not just say, I'll pray for you, but just stop right there and say, hey, do you mind if I pray about that? They will be shocked. You know what? Because you're the chain between them and God. You are. And God will use you to demonstrate that love in such a meaningful way. That is the picture of the gospel. This is what our Lord Jesus did as he prayed for those who crucified him. And so you and I, we, we don't get upset. Boy, why is everybody pushing me aside? Why is everybody marginalizing me? No, I'll pray for them. I'll pray for those who despitefully use me and persecute me. This is the role of the Christian in exile. Well, what about the role for us toward one another um, the purpose, their prayer, vertically, but then also horizontally. We have two horizontal commands, and verse 8 gives the first one, primarily. Uh, the primary horizontal command is to what? Four-letter word, love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So as I think about the world around me, I'm praying for them, I'm praying for you. But also, I'm committed to love. To love one another. This text gives us a lot about love. Uh, we'll just dive into it here. First of all, love is primary. Above all, we're to love one another. Above all things. He gives a lot of commands in this letter. And he's showing us the primary one here. This is what Jesus says distinguishes the followers of his. By this all men will, you know, will know you're my disciples by how you answer correctly on a theology quiz. No, by your love for one another. They're going to know you by your love for one another. Of course, that love is not this gushy feeling of every time that person comes in, I feel uh, uh, like I do when Sarah walks in. Uh, it's not that. It's not an infatuation. It's our word agape. Agape, right? Thank you, Joe, for mentioning that. Um, reading scripture today. Agape is that self 
unselfishly serving another with no thought of return. Right? That's what agape is. This is God's love. Uh, it's not focusing on me. It's not helping others so they will help me. It's helping others no matter what they do to me or for me. And so love is above all. But what else is it? It's primary. It's also fervent. It's a continual fervent love. Because let's be honest, it's, it's easy to love someone for half an hour. It's easy to put up with someone even through a whole basketball game. But when you get to like their personality and then, boy, after a year, you really get to know that person. And that's when agape needs to come in. Right? This is the love that's needed in every marriage, right? And I will say this, we have a book on developing loving relationships. I think all of our couples need to go through that. We're going to return to it in February. We're going to have a conference in February on that and, and a conference on parenting in March. Um, but anyway, this is important for, for families, but it's important for a church. Keep fervent in your love. I love that word fervent. The idea is zealous, earnest, but literally stretched out. There's this stretching that's involved. But sometimes we feel stretched when we're loving one another. It's used of a horse going full throttle. What a beautiful picture. That person is full throttle, like they're just flying in their love for others. That can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Love is outward focused. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Right? It's very easy to love yourself. We're born selfish. Some others are easy to love because you get along well with them. Others are more difficult to love. We're to be having this essential love for others. All those around you. Your brothers and sisters in this room were to act toward their well-being with no thought of return. Even the person that's the toenail needs to be trimmed and clipped and maybe painted and go to that, what's it called? Not manic pedicure, yeah. Right? Even those less homely, as 1 Corinthians puts it, less lovely, needs to be loved. This is the one anotherness, the togetherness, the koinonia of the body. And some of you are nice eyeball, but others are not. And it's okay. Um, we need to care for one another uh, and love one another. And then this one is the hard one. You ready for this? Primary, fervent, outward, and then what? Love is forgiving. Uh, how do we love? Uh, why do we love? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers over that person's transgressions. It's easy to see the, the, the faults. It's easy to point to them. Love doesn't do that. Love says, oh, oh, oh man. I didn't want anyone to see that. My poor brother and sister. Now, it's not covering so that they can continue in sin. The idea is someone shivering in the corner. You don't want anyone to know that they're shivering, so you put a blanket on them. You try to help them out of that sin. The opposite of that is pointing and shaming, looking down on, 
Love is not the tabloid that celebrates the sins and discrepancies of others. Love is the opposite of that. It's embarrassed for them and wants to hide with them. It's taking the blanket over the shoulders and covering the family member. I don't want anyone to know about that sin. My brother and sister, I want everyone to forget about it. That's what love does because it's not self-focused. It's others-focused. And so it covers it up. It covers it up. It throws a blanket over the transgression, a multitude of sins. Now, if that person has sinned against you, it doesn't act as if and just lets the person continue to beat you up. That's not what it's talking about. The idea is it helps that person out of the sin, but it doesn't draw attention to it. It doesn't call others over and say, look at the sin of this person. No, that's not at all what it does. This is what Jesus did with Peter after Peter denied him. He ascended, uh, he rose before he ascended, and he brought Peter to the side and he said, Peter, Peter just denied him days early. Like, there's something in us that would want to say with all these 12 buddies, you know, you guys don't know this, but Peter threw me under the bus. You guys are all following him as a fisherman. Good luck. I don't know where he's going to take you. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus took him aside from everyone else. He said, Peter, do you, do you really love me? And he recommissioned him. He did not throw him. He recommissioned him to further service. A beautiful picture of love. This is what love does. This is supernatural. It covers over the grievances of others toward us and forgives. It lets go. The most beautiful examples of this is from a dear lady. She's 80 telling this story. She says, I sat at a church in Munich. She had just shared her testimony. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, brown felt hat clutched between his hands, approached her, and she recognized him immediately. He was someone who um, was one of the guards that overlooked her and her daughter in a prison camp. Corey and Betsy had gone to prison in the Holocaust because of rescuing Jewish people with their family. And this man would sit and mock as these naked ladies would have to walk by and laugh and jeer at them. She said, as soon as I saw him, it came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out after she was actually in Holland sharing a message of forgiveness. So she's sharing her testimony. Let's forgive. And he comes to her and says, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. I remembered him. Her sister died there. Her sister was a greater example of forgiveness as they were talking about forgiveness. Being persecuted, Betsy and Corey persecuted by them. She would say, what are we going to do for these people? 
And, and, and when we were out of here, Corey was thinking about the prisoners. Betsy was thinking about the, the guards. Yeah, they need the gospel. He said, I, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did. Will you forgive me? I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. And I remembered, if you do not forgive men their trespass, neither will the Father in heaven forgive your trespass. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can only do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand, and I said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard, the former prisoner, having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had the difficulty in forgiving. She said, I, I go on, I wish I could say I had mercy, charitable all times, but still need to learn the lesson of forgiveness. That comes by God's strength. Emotions tarry sometimes, refusing to let us forgive with all our heart. We need to let love cover that transgression. Not letting them put you in prison again, but freeing them. And freeing yourself from the bitterness that it caused. The best illustration of that, we'll get to in just a moment. Let's get the second command, though, first of all. Love covers a multitude of sins. What's our second command here? Uh, second horizontal command is similar be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable to one another. All right. This is important. Now, in that, in that day, there were a lot of refugees. This day, there's a lot of refugees, and that was the idea. The idea was those that are not just brothers and sisters, but those that you don't know well. You're to be kind to them. Actually, it's our other word for love, phileo. Those of you who follow that kind of that study, it's, that's at the root of this. So be brotherly kind toward those that are strangers. Um. And so this is important in a church, to show hospitality. And so that is having folks, uh, meeting with folks, out to eat, having folks into your home, but specifically those that you don't know. It's that welcoming factor that a church needs to have. Uh, as you see someone new, you're saying, hey, welcome to our family. So good to meet you. That's hospitality. It's our whole fellowship team here. Um, the idea of love and forgiveness. We're going to have pie and praise next Tuesday night. Uh, this fellowship meal, right? And uh, so we're divvying this up by neighborhood. And I know we have a family that's covered Kew Gardens, the Snavelys. A family that's covered Briarwood, the Richmonds. A family has covered Manhattan, um, the Barnors, Collins and Nana. But we still have a Forest Hills family and a Rigo Park family. If you want to open your living room, 
and show this hospitality to who knows who's going to come in. Maybe some really strange. Let me know. Someone as strange as me. Um, you can do that. This is what this is about. Showing hospitality. Not considerate about myself, but considerate of others. Okay, so let me know if you're willing to do that. Why do we do that? Why can we do this? In conclusion, we do this because God loves us. Um, this is the only way. This is the only way for this to be happening uh, naturally. Jesus was able to look, it's like Corey Ten Boone, but even more so, as he was dying, as he was crucified, he was able to look at those who were killing him. And what was he able to say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As he met with Peter, he's able to forgive him. As he meets with you on a daily basis, he's able to forgive you because he loves you. And so we love others because God loves us. And today people are so depressed, discouraged, despondent. One of the reasons is that they're looking for acceptance in the wrong place. Um, They're trying to find it with any of these types of things, popularity, being attractive, being funny, being accepted, being powerful, being perceived as important. The truth is you will always find someone more powerful, more wealthy, more healthy, more accepted, with more followers, perceived of as more important, more influential. Right? And so we talk to junior hires and teens about this. Right, your, your proper image. Um, but you usually don't grow out of that. Adults often continue to compare themselves with each other. Um, and, and really where we need to go with all of that is not thinking, well, I'm really good in myself, so I need a proper self-image. But recognize this, God loves me. God, God loves you. God loves you. Even when you were a sinner, even before you were saved, God showed his love towards you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Just to recognize the fact that even with my frailties, my inadequacies, God knows me intimately and he loves me. If you were the only person on earth, God would work to know you and love you when you feel that when you know that when you as the bible says stand firm in the love of god then all these other things like that person called me and you it's a bleep that's okay it doesn't matter what they think about me or this person is more accepted it's okay the creator of the universe loves me And he loves them. And so that overwhelming truth bubbles out of us and explodes to where it's a well of water springing up to love toward others. And that's how you love your brothers and your sisters, recognizing this infinite, eternal, matchless love of God in Jesus Christ bubbles over me into others today. And then you keep yourself in the love of God, filled to the brim, bubbling over to others.
love the poem. We'll end with this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, reaches to the lowest hell. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. I looked up the story behind this this week. I, I don't know if it's true, but I see it in a couple places written by a guy in California who came uh, overwhelmed with financial pressure. He's working a uh, huge number of hours with, with uh, I think, uh, as an orange farmer, something like that. Um, but anyway, and, and as he's working so hard to just make ends meet, he's like, overwhelmed with not his busyness and his work, but with the love of God. He's like, I've got to voice this to others who are going through a similar issue. So he writes, could we with ink the oceans fill? Were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? Every scribe and man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, both stretch from sky to sky. Let's pray. Well, if you believe that love is towards you, you not only leave content praising God for his amazing grace in Jesus, but you also are ready to show that same love to someone like Peter, to someone like John and James, these guys always fighting, and to and, and your brothers and sisters around you. You're, you're really ready to have an infinite supply of love for them. Let's all talk to the Lord about this beautiful passage, encouraged by his love. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be in the back lobby, happy to pray with you. In just a moment, we'll uh, lead in a time of closing prayer.